Katrina. Welcome to the Seeding Social Good Podcast by Turnkey. Today, or this episode, I should say, I'm not going to turn on the camera because I just wanted to talk. I have this idea that the problem in the United States that we're facing right now, a big problem we're facing, is that our society is fractured. Communities have formed around ideas that are really harmful, uh, both on the left and the right. Um, they separate us. They make us radical when we didn't start out that way in both directions. And I feel like it's time for us to take a stand as people in social good. And I believe that we can. In fact, I believe that we may be the only people who can. One in 10 Americans work for a nonprofit. A bunch of others like me work for nonprofits as a for-profit corporation. So how can we fix it? How can we lean in, because there's a lot of us, and change it? And I want to talk about a potential path to that. We believe at Turnkey, and particularly in this household, me and my husband, Dr. Otis Fulton, who's a social psychologist who influences me greatly with lots of education and leather-bound books, we believe that we can form communities around different ideas, around ideas that connect us instead of separate us. And we believe that our effort to do that should be scientific. It should be methodological. It should be systematic. It should be full of processes and procedures instead of pretty words. Here's what I mean. I'm just going to take you through how it could happen and why it would work. I'm going to take myself as an example first. I am like I am practically invisible when I go to the grocery store because I'm a gray-haired old lady, right? And I, I am the epitome of average. Uh, I don't do crazy things, typically. But my son, Giles, asked me four or five years ago if I would spend time with him every Wednesday night. And I said, oh, hell yeah. I mean, you don't get that offer very much when your kids are grown. He's 26 Anyway, I said, yes, I would love, love, love to do whatever you want to do on Wednesday night. And the next day he came back and he said, mom, we're going to do jujitsu. And I thought, oh, no, 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 we're not. No, we can't. That's awful because that's sweating like in very, very close proximity to other people. But he said, yeah, that's what I want to do. And so there I was every Wednesday night showing up learning how to wrestle with people of all shapes and sizes. And I didn't like it very much the first time. But over time, I kind of got into it. And the, the main reason I did is because I found a group of women um, who I really enjoyed being with. Like they were women who were very good athletes. They were challenging. They were by and large pretty smart. And um, I just began to really enjoy it. And so I started going twice a week and then three times a week. And then suddenly, somehow, I end up at a jujitsu tournament competing. I am the oldest person in the building. I may have been the oldest person in the county. I don't know. I'm 60 now. And how did that happen? How did I end up competing in a jujitsu tournament at my age? That's ridiculous. But for me in my community, that seemed perfectly normal because that's what we do here. We work out, we get good at this, and then we go compete, which is exactly what I did. 
So what happened to me? Why did that work for me? Let's start with community. The psychological definition of a community is that people have a shared idea and they have a way to communicate with each other. And that's the biggie, a way to communicate with each other. That doesn't have to be, we don't have to define exactly how. It could be online, it could be in person, it could be at a walk, it could be at a gala, but we have to have that opportunity. That's the definition of a community. So what is the psychological operation of a community? First, the shared idea and the ability to talk to each other. But what happens is that people, they seek out other people who share their values and their interests, just like I did. And as we engage with the people in that community, we figure out like, yeah, this is a pretty good fit for me. These, these interactions that we have, they reinforce our identity. And that's what's called the social validation feedback loop. The more we engage, the more our identity is reinforced and being validated by others is very rewarding. So these positive interactions, they, they further strengthen my identity. And it, it says to me, these people are like me. What I'm doing is good. What I'm, what I'm doing is expected in the context of this community. And so you build trust. You build trust in the idea of what you're doing. And you build trust with the other people there. And when you get that level of trust, everything gets better. Katrina goes and competes in a jiu-jitsu tournament. Your fundraiser goes and raises $10,000. So is there any data to support any of this? Or is it just, just conjecture and the result of too many uh, bottles of Sauvignon Blanc and conversations with Otis? I think there is some data. I have a, a new friend who generously gave me some data he's been working on that he hasn't released yet. Um, Josh Burkholt, CEO of BWF. And what he gave me is data that basically said this, when donors are friends with other donors, they have an increased lifetime value four to five times, four to five times correlated or causal. Who cares? Let's just do it. Let's give them friends and give them a way to talk to each other. Interestingly, too, people who are friends with other donors, donors who are friends with other donors, they're also more resilient during uncertainty economically. They stick around longer. So I think this makes the case clearly that like being alone kind of sucks. Being together is better on almost every front. But in fundraising, particularly social fundraising, here's another data point that supports the idea that community may be our answer to all bad things. Team fundraising, we have known for a million years that people on teams raise more on average than people who fundraise as individuals. And all that is demonstrating is the self-validation feedback loop at work in a small community environment called a team. The social norm on a team is to do certain stuff. If we get them in that environment, people will do certain stuff. That is the social norm. Raise $10,000, show up at an event, run the 5K, whatever it is, they will do it. Now, I'm betting 
that some folks listening to that are this or thinking like, yeah, well, we do that all the time. We create community all the time, just like that. We have teams, they fundraise at high levels, the people on them. Yeah, we do that. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't do it with intent. And by that, I mean this. We have built systems and structures to raise money. That was our end goal. We didn't build systems and structures to give our constituents community. That was a byproduct, an accidental byproduct. And here's one reason I know it's accidental. Uh, John Scott was the former, gosh, he held a lot of titles. I think he retired as the chief development officer of the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. And he and I were having this conversation, batting, batting it back and forth one day. And, and he said, Katrina, you know what? You're right. We did not have the intent to build community, although we said that we did. And the reason I know this is because as soon as an event was over, we stopped putting them together. It was over. We had checked the box. We had no intention to, com to continue our effort to foster their community. Here's another way that we know. When we think about what we spend money on in a nonprofit, we spend a lot of money on, uh, and let's keep it in the communications realm. You know, how much money do we invest and how do we invest it? in communications. So when we uh, have the organization communicate to the members of the uh, community, in quotes, we spend a lot of money on that. Uh, we do outbound email, direct response. We put up a web website. We publish an annual report. We do direct response, print. We do a lot of stuff. We invest heavily. Now, there's another way communication can happen, can go from the member to the organization. We are so kind that we let them reply to us. We're so nice. Member to outsider, another major way communications flows. That happens pretty much only in the context of peer-to-peer -peer activities, whether it's fundraising, mission, whatever. That's how we do it. Member to member, meaning do we invest in the constructs and the situations that will allow our constituents to be with each other and share communication about the mission? How much do we invest in that? Almost none. And yet we know for sure that is the one thing, the one kind of communication that will reinforce their identity, that will help them become so much more aligned with us, with the idea that our mission represents, but we don't give it to them. There are reasons for that, which we'll go into. So why don't we give community? I think the first and greatest reason is that we don't really understand it. What's it for? How does it work? That's why I say we have to operationalize it. We have to put system and process and metrics into community building. Second, artificial structures, org charts, revenue silos. You know, when you think about how we group our constituents, we group them completely by how they give us money. Now, do we have a mission component? Yes, we do. I'm going to put that aside for a moment because we could talk all night. We segment them by how they give us money. So if I have a family, a mom who lost her 13-year-old girl to pediatric brain cancer as a direct response constituent, and I have another one over there in peer-to-peer -peer fundraising, same set of circumstances. Do I purposely put them together? Yeah, sometimes. Not really. That's not like the, the biggest thing I do. Another reason that we 
uh, don't foster community is because we have to segment outbound communications. It can get confusing for constituents. Why am I, why, why are we talking to them in this moment? Is it for the gala? Is it for the walk? Is it for direct response? Everybody's fighting. It's about control. One reason that people don't want constituents talking to each other is because they might have ideas. They might want to do things that we don't want to do. Yeah, I know we said we're volunteer-led, but please, come on. We're not that volunteer-led. So we're afraid of them, uh, the horse getting a bit in, in their teeth. And then last, annual goals. Uh, our performance metrics are built yearly. And building community requires investment that spans many years. So when you think about the touch points, the way that you build your experience maps for your constituents, and you think about how they're built right now, this is an easy exercise to go through and figure out, like, where are we providing the opportunity for one-on-one -on -one constituent connections, and where are we not? Don't even try and, like, layer intent. Did we mean to or not? Forget about that. Just do we or don't we? Yes or no? And the answer will be no in most cases. Now, there are changes you can make. So let's take an example. Let's say we're, um, we have a campaign going out and we are encouraging people to register and fundraise for a big walk. And so we got the Facebook ad out there to register. You know, they go through all the normal touch points and none of them encourage them to be with someone else, to do this with someone else. Now, Here's an idea. Instead of sending them uh, after they register, instead of sending them an email that thanks them for registering and, hey, let's giddy up and fundraise, what if we put in place the systems and processes that would have another constituent, an experienced constituent who shares some portion of their experience in life, mission experience, that other constituent reaches out and, and welcomes them and invites them to form or join a team to immediately put them into a small community. Would that foster community? Would that impact their affinity quickly? Yes, it would. Very, very, very yes, it would. But here's the problem. The systems and processes required to set up a volunteer management system to recruit them, to train them, to measure them, to keep it going, what do we call that? We call that a non-revenue producing activity. Is it linked to revenue? Yes. Can I put a dollar on it? Uh, it's hard. It's hard. And you know who you need for that? To break down the barriers, to allow you to put that system in place is your CEO. Not just any old CEO, but a CEO who understands how community forms, how identity is built. What's the easiest, best, fastest way and support you in those efforts. That means that when you say, yeah, we're having an activity, we're putting people together, uh, it's going to cost some money, that CEO has your back. So when you think about like, how would my organization make this a, a holistic change? How do we do it? It's a change in design intent. We have to go through the experience mapping and we have to say, what are we after? And if we're after psychological satisfaction so that people change their identity, become more aligned with us, do more for us for longer time periods, it's just work, people. Deciding what is it I'm trying to get done? 
How am I going to satisfy them, make them happy using the trifecta of satisfaction, autonomy, competence, and most important, connectedness, community, giving them one-on-one instances to be with someone else, opportunities, experiences to be with other people who believe what they believe. That is the path. That is the path. And that will get you your $10,000 fundraiser, your old lady in a jujitsu tournament (laughs) faster than anything else. I believe passionately that this is the way we really help the world. More than 10% of us in America work in nonprofit. I don't even know when you count people like me who work for people in nonprofit, how many would it be? It's a lot. What if we could change the conversation away from the current divisions of all sorts and move it to things that join us, move it to curing cancer, saving babies, move it to feeding the hungry, housing the homeless. We can do that. That's who we are. Change starts with just one person, you. If today's episode got your gears turning, don't forget to share it with your network. And hey, why not drop us a review? Your review helps more people find us and spread the good. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, this is Katrina signing off from Seeding Social Good Podcast by Turnkey. Stay inspired, keep making waves, and let's create a better world together.